Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number 20. This week, we sit down with my good friend and former teacher and mentor, Dr. Sandy Newmark. Sandy is the director of the clinical programs at the University of California at San Francisco's Osher Center for Integrative Health. He is an integrative pediatrician and a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, with the title of Osher Foundation Endowed Chair in Clinical Programs in Integrative Medicine. To me, he is an amazing teacher and an onion peeler in the world of attention deficit and neurobehavior. I met Sandy, Dr. Newmark, back in 2006, as he was the lead pediatric teacher at the University of Arizona's Center for Integrative Medicine Fellowship Program. He immediately made an impact on my career as a leader in this new way of seeing the world of medicine. His bio lists him as being a specialist in integrative neurobehavioral and neurodevelopmental pediatrics, including the disorders of attention deficit, autism, and other related conditions. Dr. Newmark lectures widely on both autism and ADHD, and has authored three chapters in integrative medicine textbooks. He is the author of the book, ADHD Without Drugs, a guide to the natural care of children with ADHD. His online video, Do 2.5 Million Children Really Need Ritalin? An Integrative Approach to ADHD has been viewed over 4.5 million times. Know this. This is an hour of your life that you won't want to get back. You will want to dedicate this hour to these great ideas and thoughts that Dr. Newmark has spent his entire career compiling for all of us to use, especially if you or your child has symptoms or problems related to attention deficit. After the interview completes, I will talk a little bit about some of the follow-up pieces that Dr. Newmark and I uh, had discussed, specifically some of the studies and some of the links to books that he really likes. So stay tuned at the end for a little bit more. But at this point, let's get started. So here's my interview with Dr. Sandy Newmark. Well, hello, Sandy Newmark from the other side of the country there in California. I know you are at the Osher Clinic at the University of California, San Francisco. And I appreciate you taking the time to come on Dr. Arms Women and Children First podcast. Today, we're gonna to spend some time talking about your favorite topic, ADD and ADHD. So welcome. Uh, thank you, I appreciate your having me. I'm honored to be here. You know, it's amazing to me to think that it was 2006, the first time I met you and how much I learned from you over those two years. And now I get to come full circle and, and go back to my teacher again and ask some questions. And for that, I am exceedingly grateful. So well, thank you. I'm, I'm really a pleasure. Yeah. It's been a so pleasure sick. watching your career too over the years. Uh, I Thank you, Sandy. So, you know, for me, let's start with the basics. Um, you know, you wrote a fantastic book in 2010, ADHD Without Drugs, A Guide to the Natural Care of Children with ADHD, right? So you clearly, way before most people were saying, there's something different here. You know, meds can't be the only solution. There's gotta be something else going on. So let's start with the basics. Let's define ADHD based on your experience over these, you know, a couple of decades. 
Okay, yeah, definitely where to start. So to me, the most basic and useful definition of ADHD is that it refers to some combination of difficulties with attention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity, which have an impact on a child's life, both at school and at home. In, in the case of the inattention subtype, it may be just attention. But there's two important caveats to that definition. First, each characteristic of ADHD exists along a continuum. It's not just either you have it or you don't. For instance, some people are very careful and some people are impulsive. Some are highly focused and some are really distractible. But all of those people are, are within the normal range. And uh, I always say, imagine if we only had a world of very careful people. What artistic and creative and entrepreneurial geniuses would we lose? So the issue is deciding when and if these traits equal what we call ADHD and need to be quote, treated. The second point is that ADHD is highly contextual. That means that how we look at certain traits or behaviors is not only really subjective, but very dependent on set and setting. So what might be really hyperactive behavior to one set of parents may just seem like quote, being a boy or even a girl to another. Was it, what is unacceptably distractive behavior to one teacher could just be a variation of normal to another and not be a problem at all. This is not only true for the level of the family and of the school, and maybe the community, but um, even at the level of the country, for instance, the percentage of children diagnosed with ADHD in France is dramatically lower than in the US or even right across the channel in England. So very dependent on set and setting and context. The other right. hand, so you do need to be careful who and when you're asking these questions to. On the other hand, the child who can't sit still for two minutes and who can't learn to read because his or her attention span is so short clearly has a problem that needs to be addressed. Yeah, so let's go there a little bit. Let's unpack that that other point. So France to England, different rates. You know, the United States is a heterogeneous population from all over the world. Our rates tend to be quite high. So, you know, why do we have so much ADHD? You know, when did it when did it start going up? Is it more diagnosis? Is it more illness? I mean, how do you unpack that part? Yeah, I think it's complex. So I like to divide it into four categories. The first category is that we used to miss a lot of kids who really did have ADHD. And I think, you know, say back in 1960, 1970, we called these kids stupid or uh, behavior problems. And the fact that we're finding them now and helping them in whatever way we help them, whether that's medication or not, is a good thing. The second thing is we've really widened the definition um, we used to not define uh, inattention subtype as ADHD. We didn't use to diagnose preschool kids as having ADHD, which we do now, which I think is uh, terrible. And, uh, and it, if you talk to people who are even older than me, they only diagnose kids who are pretty much coming in and tearing up your office and were uncontrollable. And, and now 98% of the kids I see, you wouldn't know they had ADHD just from a uh, short visit. So that's the second one. The third one is I think we just misdiagnose a lot. I think that there's a tremendous pressure from schools 
and parents for kids to get diagnosed so they can get services, so they can get medication. And uh, there are so many primary care providers who are put in a very difficult position of having to diagnose ADHD in a 15 or 20 minute visit. And I think that's very difficult. Even if you use the forms, you know, the standardized forms like Connors or, or Vanderbilt, that is still not enough. In fact, one really interesting study showed that the Connors, even the long form, was only 38% specific compared to a full gold standard ADHD evaluation, hmm. which means if you just use the Connors, two thirds of the kids basically that you diagnosed, it would be incorrect. Yeah. And then the fourth one is that I think there may be more kids with ADHD because of toxins in the environment, number one. And also, again, back to the set and setting, there's uh, more working families who have less time for the kids where there's two people working. Uh, communities have really broken up. So there's not the uh, family so that people live 3,000 miles away from their grandparents who don't get that help and uh, the guidance. And uh, even neighbors are not people you've known all your life anymore. And I think all of those, uh, all of those areas uh, create more ADHD. Yeah, I was looking um, earlier today before we got on the call because I, I was curious again what the latest data is. I found a 2017 article by Miriam Hamza, and the, you know, it's called Epigenetics and ADHD. And they wrote, in the gene environment interaction model, several clinical genetical, genetic and molecular arguments support the epigenetic hypothesis in ADHD etiology. Environmental ADHD risk factors include toxic, nutritional factors, stressful life events, which lead to changes in DNA methylation and histone modification, which is, you know, a fancy way of saying our environment is affecting our phenotype, how we look, how we act, how we do. And I think to your point, there's clearly four or more ideological or um, just basic understandings as to why we think we're seeing more. And I think this sort of comes up, and I was interviewing Steve Borowitz recently about milk protein intolerance and how many more kids I'm seeing with milk protein intolerance than I did even 22 years ago and how it's so hard to tease out the, the, the upstream risk factors that are driving it. We just know it's sort of happening. And so I think that's sort of the case here with ADHD. We have some ideology behind why we think it's happening, but we're not quite sure. So let's segue there. Sandy, you know, when you think about, you know, the average pediatrician who's not integrative trained, who has no, uh, you know, background knowledge in, in, you know, nutritional therapy, because we get 16 hours of training in our, in our great medical schools on nutrition and, and a lot of those things, what does the average provider not know of the things that you have laid out very clearly in your book that help change the outcome for the kids, whether it's less medicine, no medicine, you know, what do you see in your day-to-day -day existence? Okay, really good question. The first thing I'd like to say is, I don't think it's well understood how easy it is to misdiagnose ADHD and confuse it with anxiety, learning disabilities, giftedness. And on the other side of the coin, to realize they can be comorbid, these things with ADHD. So you can have ADHD and anxiety, ADHD and learning disabilities. And it really takes some time to sort that out. And if you can't sort that out right, you can't really treat the child correctly. So, but in terms of interventions, uh, the big things that I don't see that the 
conventional doctors mostly, uh, I see that they mostly miss are the importance of lifestyle things like diet, sleep, exercise, screen time, parenting strategies, school interventions. And I find that paying attention to all of these can either eliminate the need for medications or improve outcome, even if medications are used. And I also think that uh, most parents and providers are not familiar with a strong research on the effectiveness of, of omega-3 fatty acids, usually in the form of fish oil, on ADHD. There's been at least three meta-analyses and every one of them shows that omega-3 fatty acids are effective in the treatment of ADHD. Also, uh, iron, there's a number of studies about ferritin levels and ADHD, and very few people know about that. So from a provider point of view, just getting uh, a CBC, a ferritin, and uh, also a zinc and vitamin D, there's less research, but some on those things is it can, can lead to very simple interventions. Yeah, so let's unpack a few of those at a time because I think that's the key. And for me, you know, um, zinc and vitamin D and ferritin, these are all uh, critical bio, not biomarkers, but nutritional markers that I, that I do track in my kids as well. Let's start with your, the number one thing you do with each kid. Is it nutrition, sleep? Which one do you go after first? Let's sort of go down your pecking order of Sandy Newmarks. These are the, these are the complementary strategies that lead to the best outcome. Right, so the first thing I do, um, let me make it even particular. So my, my visits are, are uh, two one hour visits separated by about two weeks so I can get labs. And during the first hour, I will find out about sleep, exercise, nutrition, all those things and get the, get the labs. And during the second visit, come up with a treatment plan. And the treatment plan uh, will always include omega-3 fatty acids. And then if ferritin, zinc, or vitamin D are low, I will add those. And then, um, so that's that's a definite. And then if sleep is a problem, if they're not getting enough exercise, um, I will uh, work with that. And then diet. Diet is very, very important. For the kids who are, who are hyperactive and who haven't tried this before, I will very often do an elimination diet. Um, lots of variations on that. Mine, I eliminate um, gluten, dairy, corn, soy, eggs, and peanuts for three weeks and see if there's an effect. If not, you can go back to a regular diet. If there is, you start adding them one by one. I would not say most kids respond, but enough kids respond so that I think it's really worth doing. It's interesting to me, and I don't know why, but the kids who just have the inattention subtype of ADHD seem to rarely respond to an elimination diet. Yeah, I found the same. Yeah, so those are the kind of first things that I do. Yeah, and as far and as far as food goes, you know, I know you and Dr. Weil and the whole team down in Arizona, you know, taught us and drilled it to, into our heads, the basic approaches of the macronutrients. So from the macro perspective, the fat, the sugar, the protein, which, which foods do you espouse? You know, the anti-inflammatory diet, is there, is there a particular, you know, avoid sugar beverages? Where do you go down that road? Yeah. So, the, so the first thing is uh, the macros. Um, I, I recommend the diet that has a good amount of protein, a small amount of processed carbs, 
and uh, healthy fats. And, you know, that sounds pretty simple, but the amount of kids who are not following a diet like that is really remarkable, uh, especially breakfast. You know, breakfast is so important because, you know, that's what they have for the first half of school. And, you know, um, so many kids are eating uh, Pop-Tarts or even frozen waffles with syrup. I mean, that is a terrible breakfast from a nutritional point of view, but very, very common. It's, you know, given how fast the uh, uh, frozen waffle flour is, is digested, it's pretty much like just giving your child 12 teaspoons of sugar in a funnel and pouring it down their throat. So that's a really big one. And then trying to get rid of any kind of uh, artificial flavor or color. We know those are really bad for everybody, and especially ADHD. In fact, in Europe, there's a warning label on anything that has certain uh, artificial colors in it saying this will make your child more hyper and inattentive. Uh, so those are the big ones. Uh, for those families who can afford it, I usually recommend organic when possible. And, um, and, and then just, the fish oil, you're saying? If, and and yeah, do you, I mean, encourage folks to eat oily fish, small oily fish, or do you just head them yeah, down the fish oil pathway? I do, but I have to say my experience of, of getting kids to eat enough fish to, to, to provide enough omega-3 fatty acids is pretty small. Unless the kids already really likes those kind of fish, they're not likely to start eating it. So I pretty yeah. much... 98% of the time I'm prescribing a fish oil supplement. And do you, do you prefer Barleen's, uh, which is the one I tend to use the most, but Northern yeah, Naturals? Yeah. Um, yeah so do you have, uh, do you have favorites? those are exactly the two I usually use. I, I generally, if it's going to be a capsule type thing, I'll use some Nordic natural product, but for, for uh, the kids who need a liquid, Barleen seems to be my number one taste winner. Yeah. And what about the gummies? The little fish? I don't use the gummies. Too many. You need too many to uh, to get the kind of dose of uh, omega-3s I use. Yeah. And the dose is really important. It is, we don't know for sure, but as far as, I, as we can tell from most of the research, you want to have about one and a half to two times as much EPA as DHA. And also, so for like average size, say, you know, six to 10 year old, I use a thousand milligrams, total EPA and DHA. Very important because you can take one gram of fish oil from one company that has 200 milligrams and another that has 600 milligrams of EPA and DHA, which are the important fats for ADHD. Right, and for the for the guests listening and the clinicians, EPA, acetylpentaenoic acid, and docosahexaenoic acid are the two principal omega three fats. And the the omega three just stands for where the double bond is in the chemical chain. Uh, omega six is the other type of fat that's primarily coming from all of our vegetable oils and processed oils. It tends to be more pro-inflammatory, whereas the, the fish oil tends to be more anti-inflammatory. Where some folks are talking about resolvents and protectants, which are these little chemicals that are made. Um, in the brain, which decreases inflammation. And we've seen a lot of work, Sandy, in, in the concussion space, right? Now, I know the military had put out a bunch of data on reduced concussions with folks on, on omega-3 fats. So I think there's a lot to be learned, um, but I think the biggest piece of this is decreasing inflammation in the brain and probably a class effect. And oh, by the way, ADHD has got probably inflammation in the brain, so we're getting that benefit there. So I, I, I totally agree. 
on that front. Any other um, macro foods that you you know for, tell people you need to get a lot of lots of colorful vegetables, anything in yeah, that land? Yeah, you do your best with color colorful vegetables and fruit. Kids kids tend to you know kind of eat what they want in the vegetable world. Most of them will eat fruit. I'm a big fan of smoothies. I, I really, for those kids who don't naturally eat a lot of fruit and vegetables, I will, I will ask the parents to start uh, making some smoothies, let the kid pick out what's in it and very gradually start getting little vegetables in as well as fruit. And that can be really helpful. And it can be a great breakfast for those kids who, who don't have a lot of time in the morning. You know, one of the things about ADHD you often hear from parents is mornings are hell, or it's like, Every morning, never happened before. <laughs> it's because these kids are very distractible and it's hard to get them out. And so they don't really have often time to sit and eat breakfast. So if you can get a really good smoothie and with say high protein yogurt and some fruit and vegetables in it, that's a really great breakfast. Right, and then and then I know you've talked widely on this topic before, but I know you, you initially um, earlier said about the refined carbohydrates limiting them. So the glycemic index, glycemic load world. So what do people need to know about that in re in relation to the inattention, the hyper hyperactivity? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I try to keep it really simple with people. I tell them that processed carbs turn to sugar really quickly, and that raises the blood sugar level and then drops it. And then it looks like they have ADHD or it makes their ADHD behavior worse. So I just try and tell them to stay away from processed carbs as much as they can, especially for breakfast and lunch and, and a little less important later in the day. And, you know, that's how I, I leave it. Yeah. And I tell it, I tell to add, my wife has taught me something over the years um, from the nutritional space that if they're eating bread, you know, just a piece of bread, a little bit of butter on it, that's going to digest rapidly and turn into that sugar spike. But if it's got an egg and some bacon attached to it as well, it's going to go much slower without that huge insulin sugar spike and all that uh, post um, glycemic response. So, you know, from, from, so what I'm hearing you say, and for all the parents listening is that, you know, essentially a high quality whole foods diet, lots of fruits and vegetables, minimally processed, um, add in some um, some fish if possible directly, but preferably fish oil if they can't get it in. Is the macro side of the world. Now great, let's go. Great. Let's go a little bit now to the micro world. You touched on it briefly. Iron as as tested as ferritin, zinc, and vitamin D. What are you looking for specifically there? Like so, you test the ferritin level. What what are we looking for? Are we looking for a number fifty? What range are you trying yeah, to reach? I, I like to see it at least forty. And, you know, people have different ones, but that, that's what I, I like to see. Some studies show over 30 is good. I like to get it to around 40. And, and I would say at least half of my kids are lower than that. And, and most of them are in the teens. Or, right. or let's say at least most of the ones that are lower than that, many of them are in the teens. Um, it's really remarkable. <clears throat> and by the way, I just had a kid with autism who came in and ferritin was one. So Wow. It was a little frightening. And so many of my kids end up being on iron. And there's really good research on that low ferritin levels are associated with worsening ADHD. And we even think we know why. It's because ferritin is an important cofactor in the production of dopamine. And dopamine appears to be important in uh, frontal lobe, good frontal lobe, frontal function. 
Right. And for the parents, when they go to their provider who may or may not be versed in this literature and they go in and the they say, hey, I want to check my, my child's iron level and they check a CBC. Why is that not enough? Right. Because clearly, you know, the CBC gives us some understanding of iron. Why aren't we getting the answers we need there? We have to go to the ferritin. Well, because most of these kids who have a low ferritin are not anemic. I would say 95% of them are not anemic. So when you get a CBC, it's normal. Right. I think of the triage theory like uh, uh, Linus Pauling had, had put out there where the body's going to utilize the minerals for the most important need first. In this case, the most important need is carrying oxygen. So your red blood cells exactly, get it first. Exactly. And then once they're done using it all, then there's some left over in the happy world of whatever the, ner- the brains, the dopamine. So for me, you have to go down the next level. So what about zinc? Do you test RBC, serum? When I can send people to Quest, I, I test RBC. Um, UCSF, where some of my patients have to go, does not check RBC zinc. They won't do it. So then I get a serum. But uh, I prefer R- RBC. That seems to be more accurate. And if it's low, I will treat her even borderline. I'll, I'll give them, say, 20 to 30 milligrams of zinc a day. Yeah. And uh, do you aim for a level of like 11 or depending on the, the, the reference range, 1100? Yeah. yeah so... Plus the reference range is nine to 14. So, you know, okay. yeah, around 11 is great. Um, yeah. And then vitamin D, you know, that's kind of been controversial. You know, it used to be the norms were 30 to 100. And, you know, now uh, it's 30 to 60 or even at UCSF, it's 20 to 50. And they're saying somebody with a vitamin D level of 20 is normal. But I don't buy that. Um, yeah, I don't either. I, I try and get, you know, vitamin D is close to 40 as I can. I don't, I don't like to say about the 80 either, but um, I think you want to be in the 30 to 50 level. How about you? What do you look at? Vitamin we, D? We, we're, we're always trying to get our vitamin D above 40 and I aim for a sun first and I caution everybody that your skin dictates your sun ability because your skin is based on genetic heritage over time. And if you have a lighter skin, you're probably from Northern parts of the uh, latitude range. So you want to be 20, 30 minutes of direct sunlight, then cover up or use sunscreen. If you're equate equatorial by definition, I tell them you probably don't need sunscreen at all. And then just measure and aim for that 40 or above. If they're not hitting it in the summertime, then I'm supplementing all year. If they're hitting it in the summertime, then I'm just supplementing in general from November until usually somewhere in that March range. And I tend to use vitamin D and K2. Do you Uh also do that? Yeah. You know, I haven't been so much, but I've just read something that makes me think I should be. Yeah. Yeah. I read a bunch of stuff about that helps direct the calcium to the bones primarily, which makes a lot of sense to me considering heart disease, a bunch of other things. It it seems to me that's a logical logical answer heading down the mechanistic pathway. So. One thing I wanted to add about omega-3s before we move on is just in the last six to eight weeks, I've been starting to check omega-3 levels, which uh, Quest will do. And it's been very interesting. It's, it's a little hard to know what to make of it because we don't have what you know really good norms, but they check a omega-3 index, which is a proportion of omega-3s in the, in the uh, red cell membranes of omega-3 fatty acids compared to other fats. And they have a sort of a cardiovascular risk um, uh, index so that, you know, if the, if the omega-3 index is low, that means increased cardiovascular risk. So I've been sort of generalizing that and just looking at what, what those numbers are. And 
most of my kids who are not on omega-3s have low omega-3 indexes. Right, right, right. And I think that's uh, when I do Nutri-evals um, on right. patients from Genova and I'll get my indexes back. And I often see uh, sometimes they're interesting enough, normal, but you actually look at the absolute number of omega-3s is super low, but their O6s are super low as well, which is not the norm. Most of the time I'm getting very, very off omega-3 indexes with high omega-6s and low omega-3s to me that tells me they're increased inflammation risk. So yeah, I, I, I would agree. So shifting gears to the next area. And again, we've spent a lot of time, um, you know, in our clinic and, and looking at different things over the years. So herbs and, and um, you know, not nutraceuticals, what in the world of nutraceuticals do you use and find great results with? And that can include things that are calming. Um, you know, I think even, um, you know, like uh, ginkgo or, or, or chamomile or any of those. So take us down the, the yeah, that, that so pathway. I, um, I use ginkgo and bacopa for attention, but I honestly, I feel the results are mildly helpful at best. I haven't found anything I'd say, wow, take this and your attention's gonna go a lot better, you know, with right, confidence. Right. It's just, I haven't found anything like that. In terms of more like relaxation and sleep, you know, there's a number of things I use. I like to use L-theanine and GABA for kids who are really anxious and, um, and um, I'll use, like you said, chamomile tea or uh, valerian for sleep. Those kinds of things can be effective. The other thing I use for some kids is there's some good, there's some good evidence that um, daily essential nutrients, that multivitamin, multimineral combination is, is helpful for kids who have um, ADHD and uh, oppositional disorder or, or emotional instability, you know, those oppositional getting really angry all the time kind of kids. And uh, so I will use that for those kind of kids, but it's really expensive. It's like $110 a month. And, you know, the recommended dose is four pills three times a day, which is difficult. Although I've seen kids improve on less, but that's an interesting nutraceutical. Uh, uh, what about um, sleep? So to me, sleep is a big one because if you're sleep deprived, not only does it mess with your mood, it also messes with your ability to focus. So what are you telling parents and kids, especially in this day of <laughs> social media and phones in their bedrooms? I mean, it's such a train wreck in our world. Yeah, um, that's exactly what, when I have find kids who are not getting enough sleep, 90% of the time it's because of screens. Right. And so I always go over there that with parents um, and make sure that they are getting the screens out of the rooms when they go to sleep, that everything's turned off and that they try and stop the screens, you know, 45 minutes to an hour before bedtime if falling asleep is a problem. Right. Uh, that, that, that's just such a major issue, screen time these days. Um, I find myself talking about it with a really significant number of my families and that's that's often the biggest source of stress in the whole family is screen time right and i think you know when you think about somebody who is spending you know three four hours in the evening and then goes to bed but the phone's near them and they're getting random little pings they're sleeping but they're waking up at two hours at three hours as far as even for a minute it's disrupting all the deep phase of sleep all the memory consolidation phases all the brain cleaning phases so it's no surprise these kids get 
really dysfunctional in the morning. And again, to the average parent, teacher, even pediatrician, this kid could look all intents and purposes like they're inattentive, but they don't truly have ADHD or ADD. So other than getting the screens out, do you use melatonin? I know you said L-theanine. I love a product called Best Rest Formula, which is a combination of GABA, L-theanine, valerian, uh, right. hops, and passion flower. There's ah, um, one called the Trello that's uh, very much like that too. And, and I will use melatonin. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a problem with it. In fact, in the autism world, there's a little bit of research that melatonin is on its own anti-inflammatory and helpful for autism. So I don't, I don't have a problem using melatonin to help them get to sleep and any you know, of the usual um, you know, um, healthy sleep modifications. And it, it's just a, it's a really big one. And with screens, some kids actually need to have a complete cold turkey reset. Right. And there's this great book maybe you know about that I would recommend called Reset Your Child's Brain by Victoria Dunkley, who's a psychologist in Southern California. And she talks about this strategy of um, just completely cutting off all screen time for a period of anywhere from six weeks, eight weeks, three months. And the, some of my parents have done that and find it to be very, very, very helpful. And surprisingly, after a few days of the kid being very cranky and upset about it, they often just adapt really well. Right. Right. I think that's almost like uh, getting the child out into the mountains for a week and greening and just, you know, we take our kids to Wyoming and we go on a dude ranch. It's unbelievable how by the end of the week, how happy and playful and joyful and thought provocative and and imaginative they are. And then we get back in the airport and it's like you just see everybody fall back into the nightmare of modern society. It is tough. You yeah. know, let's a little bit more on sleep and then I want to switch to, to exercise a little bit. But do you have a, a number you try and give people? I know there's some published data, but are you telling your teens trying to get nine hours? I know that's almost impossible for most of the teens I talk to. Um, yeah. No, I, uh, you know, I think kids, there's a lot of variation. I, and, and, you know, on the average, of course, you, you know, you want your little, you know, five-year-olds to get 12 hours of sleep. And I think for teens, if you can get the seven to eight hours of sleep, you're doing pretty well, really. Uh, I'm okay with that. Um, asking nine hours, you know, is hard. And, you know, there's a few teens who will tell you they don't feel well, let's say, at nine hours. But you can get yeah. them to get a solid seven or eight. I think that's pretty good. Yeah, I get I get a little incensed as I'm going to segue into into exercise. You know, movement is a great way to fall asleep. And anyone who's had a hard day at work in the yard, gardening, whatever, knows their sleep quality that evening tends to be pretty darn good because you're exhausted. So yeah, it's a child that I was one of those hyperactive children, you know, when I was growing up. And I remember when I got in a lot of trouble, I'd often lose gym time or you know, recess time after standing against the wall, which was the exact opposite oh, thing. Oh, I know, pet I would need, right? It's like madness. The one thing I did need to do was pound it out somehow, right? And so, you know, I'm a drummer now. And when I'm stressed, I sit on the drums and I bang for 30, 60 minutes, sweat it out, and I feel much better. And it calms the mind. It does all these things. So talk to me about exercise. I know there was some initial data, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factors involved and all this stuff. Oh, yeah, what you, what that stuff is fascinating, um, I, I think that we know now that exercise, as you say, directly affects uh, brain function through BDNF. And um, the question is how you, you know, there's a certain set of ADHD kids, you don't have to say anything. I mean, they're just running around all the time. <laughs> and yeah. uh, 
And then there's another set that plays sports. And so that usually does it. PE, you know, it's uh, in my area, we're lucky if it's two or three times a week. And so that doesn't do it, but you know, it's helpful when they have it. And so what you have to do is figure out what to do with those kids who don't naturally exercise. And there's a couple of things. Um, ADHD kids, uh, some of them are really good at sports, but for many of them, team sports are just not the answer. They just cannot deal with the uh, structure of it, all the downtime there is, just having to sit, listen to somebody talk like a coach, all the, you know, and, and, uh, and make rules. And so for those kids, uh, individual sports are, are often much better, things like tennis or swimming. And so part of what I'm saying is they need an exercise prescription, you know, not just get more exercise. And then for many kids, martial arts is a big key. For some reason, I don't quite understand. Many kids are very hyperactive, oppositional, difficult, uh, distractible, can just focus right in on martial arts. And if you get the right teacher, that can be very helpful. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've seen that happen many, many times in our clinic as well. And so any other lifestyle modification things you can think of before we switch over into you know, biofeedback and some of these gaming ADHD treatments coming out? Is there anything you want to well, add? One more thing about exercise is what do you do with the kid who doesn't want to do any of that and who's locked into screens? And so my new thing I've been doing for a couple of years and it seems to be working pretty well for some families. I say, get an exercise bike or get a treadmill and make them be on it to be on their screen. Oh, nice. Play, so, pay to play. Pay to play. There you have it. I even knew one family a long time ago who hooked their TV set up to this bicycle so it wouldn't work unless your bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> but most people can't do that, but they can say, no, you can't be on your screen unless you've gotten your 30 minutes of exercise in. And I have one little kid who has autism who now is like an hour and a half a day. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, that can be a good a good little trick. So I'm going to segue over in a second. Before I segue, I just want to state to to the providers out there that are listening to this. You know, when I started learning this stuff from you and and the team out in Arizona back in the day, and I started watching what happened to our patients when they started getting into the lifestyle modification, nutri- nutrition changes, sleep, everything, and you could just see the need for medicine improve. So they went with less medicine, a lot of them coming off medicine. And then as the time went on, I would start everybody on this. And then half of them wouldn't need medicine at all. And then the ones that did need medicine, they had such low doses that you never hit side effect profiles because you're not ramping up these massive doses to try and get the effect size you need. And so from the clinicians, the parents, everyone out there, if you don't take this part seriously, you're destining, you're basically saying to your child, I'm okay with giving you heavier drugs to try and get the need you you want to see, which again, I think is the worst idea on the planet. It's not effective medicine for me in my mind. So again, I appreciate all of your thoughts on this, Sandy, because this is the news to use for all parents. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And I, I wanna emphasize that what you're saying is that it's not an either or, oh, we're gonna do lifestyle and vitamins or we're gonna do medications. I mean, I am definitely not anti-medication. I don't think our medications are great, but they do work. And so, you know, it's a question, as you say, can you do without them? And if not, how much is your lifestyle and other interventions going to decrease the need for high doses? Right. 
Right, right, right. So, so biofeedback, you know, neurofeedback, um, occupational therapy, do you see anything in this space, you know, being important? Because, you know, again, like the, like the herbal space, I've not seen a whole lot that has had major effects outside of the micronutrients. So what right. do you see in the biofeedback, neurofeedback space? So, you know, I think the problem with EEG, the only biofeedback that's good for ADHD itself, rather than say, you know, anxiety and some of the comorbid things is really been neurofeedback, EEG neurofeedback, which can be really helpful for kids, but we're talking like 30 to 40 sessions, $6,000, $5,000. And that's just a big ask, even from my relatively wealthy patients even right. in terms of the commitment. So I just don't have that many kids who actually do it, but, you know, it can be helpful. Um, I, I think that um, the, the new uh, gaming modalities might be really interesting. But before we get there, I'm looking forward to seeing if people can develop neurofeedback interventions that would be effective, that would be done in the home for much, much less right. uh, money. Because, I mean, the idea of, I mean, we know that kids can actually change their brain waves. You can watch them change their brain waves. Uh, if, you're, if you're watching EEG neurofeedback, I've seen it myself. Uh, just by watching a video or looking at a graph of their brain waves, they can do it. So the question is, is doing it in a way that's cost-effective and reasonable and will generalize enough so that it will affect their ADHD. Right. Yeah, I've been recently involved in listening to a company that's based in the Boston area um, called Attentive, A-T-E-N-T-I-V. And they have a product called Skylar's Run, which is exactly what you're talking about. It's a game situation hooked up to EEG, and they have a whole algorithm that goes along with it. They've studied 400 kids, and they've had effect sizes better than your non- stimulant medications like Stratera and I can't remember the other one, um, Quelbury, but not as good as methylphenidates. So somewhere in between. And the price point seems to be a lot more in line with what you're talking about and can do it at home. Um, so I think this may be coming. I'm very curious to see how their research continues to pour out. They're about to start a big project with the Robert Wood Johnson um, Center in New Jersey. So keep your, keep your uh, ears to the, to the railroad tracks for this one. But I think this would meet some of the criteria you're actually stating. So that's something I'm hopeful for. Cause outside of that, you know, the only other thing I think we haven't touched on that I think has value again, more probably in the calming side of the space, but is, you know, is the meditation slash prayer slash, you know, uh, somatic, understandings in a lot of these kids, especially again, I think the inattentive hyperactive patient would benefit. Um, do you recommend that much? Yes. I mean, it, it, it's hard to get kids to do it, but I, I definitely think for, especially for those kids who have anxiety, which is a lot of kids with ADHD, I think meditation, yoga, uh, relaxation techniques, there's been some, a couple of, more than a couple of studies about, uh, about MBSR, uh, um, which have shown that if you do it in class, it will make all the kids pay attention better and be less hyperactive. And, you know, if we could get MBS far uh, into the schools on a regular basis, that would be tremendous. Right. The other right. thing that I'm, I'm, I've looked at is there's a product called Endeavor, 
which is a, a video game based thing, was partly developed by neuroscientists here at UCSF, which now has uh, FDA approval for the treatment of ADHD because they did a couple of studies showing uh, improvement uh, with kids playing this video game um, five times a week for four weeks, a four week break, and then doing it again. That's how they did the research. And so I think that really has potential. I've been recommending it to patients lately, but I have to say, I haven't seen dramatic improvement on it very much. So okay. And, and MBSR, MBSR stands for mindful based stress reduction? Mindful based stress reduction. It's usually a six or eight week uh, per, uh, course, which, uh, which uh, you know, as it sounds, uh, talks about mindfulness, and they have some that are especially for kids. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I tend to recommend there's no kids. potential there. Yeah, I tend to recommend teenagers at least try mindfulness, uh, especially guided meditation. I think they have an easier time with guided meditation. Yeah. Um, I know there's a website, Mindfulness for Teens. I'll actually, you know, I think staring into the distance, listening to music and focusing on one point, I think is valuable for young teens just to get them into that mode of just keep trying to keep their mind off of whatever they're cycling on or racing on. I think there's value in that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I agree. So, you know, since, since you started practicing, you know, a few decades ago, ha have the drugs changed in your mind to an effect size that, you know, life is better now than it was 30 years ago. I mean, we've had methylphenidate for a long time. You know, that's the interesting thing is I've not seen anything in the drug world that's very different. You know, what we get is these little slight variations, which can make it more convenient or, you know, like Vyvanse is a somewhat longer uh, length of action, but that has its downsides as well, or, you know, um, uh, one of them will come as a liquid, but you know, they're just the same medications. Helbree's really not any different significantly than Stratera. Right. So I'm not seeing anything new in the medication world uh, that I'm impressed with. I, I hope I hope someday that there will be a, a better, you know, a really seriously better drug developed because these things really do have a lot of side effects and, and we don't know the long-term effects. So but I don't I'm not seeing much in that way. Do you have, um, like, I could tell you what I think, you know, but um, do you have an idea of when you think drugs are absolutely necessary? For me, I tend to fall into the category of, you know, if your grades are Fs and you are a relatively intelligent child and you really are telling me you just can't concentrate, then I think if you've done the lifestyle modification, a therapeutic drug trial makes sense to me there. Um, in the absence of you know, bad grades. I'm completely against a teacher telling me you need to sit still. Therefore you need medicine. So if you're getting A's and able to study, that is an automatic no. What do you, how do you play, parse out these things? Cause when you get the parent coming in, the teacher says he's got ADD and he needs medicine. And clearly, you know, the kid is more behaved on the medicine potentially. How do you fall out on all of that? Yeah. So I have three criteria in my mind for kids for thinking a child needs medication, assuming that we've tried the lifestyle things. First right. one is just what you say, as if they can't learn. Not, not even their grades, it's just that they can't learn. Because there are kids who, who uh, are learning fine, but they get good bad grades because they're not getting their homework in on time or something like that, and that can be worked with. So that's one thing, is it's really interfering with learning. Number two is it's 
really interfering with their social success. Because sometimes ADHD kids, as you well know, become really uh, you know, targets of bullying. That you know, kids don't like them. There's they're so ADHD they don't get they don't get uh, hints and, and uh, social cues. So that's another one. And the third is if life is so disturbing at home that there's you know uproar and and, and real negative effects on the whole family. And under or overriding all of those is self-esteem. Right. Self-esteem is really going down because of ADHD. That's to me, that's a, a reasonable uh, time to treat if other things don't work. And I agree. And I think that's, a, I'm glad you brought that up. It didn't hit my mind yet until you did, but that's a big one in our clinic. I know Dr. Koontz is my 83 year old partner. He focuses on that more heavily than anything when it comes to yeah. ADHD therapy, because he's seen over his 50 plus years of practice, what lack of self-esteem does to a child's outcome in life as an adult. And so, yeah, thank you for putting that one out there. Cause I think that's a massive, massive one on all levels, not just ADHD. I think self-esteem is a huge, huge problem, and especially with social media now and girls. So we see a ton of oh self-esteem yeah. concerns because of what social media and the parroting back of different behaviors. Oh, it's scary, scary, scary. I wonder if I could have even turned out like I did you know, whatever it is that I am, if I had social media back in my day, I mean, I might've been in, I might've been, you know, I don't know what I would have ended up. Actually, that's a hard thing to tell. <laughs> yeah, really. I know it's really a, a kind of a scary world out there. One thing else I'll say about self-esteem is that's where I think parenting approaches can be very, very helpful because the parents, especially in the early years and until teenage years are really the source of kids' self-esteem. And their self-esteem is so hit at school, you know, people telling not to do this and stop doing that. And why did you do this? And, and so parents can often get really angry and confused and, and, uh, and upset, especially with the oppositional kids. And they really need some help. And that's where you, you often have to turn to parenting help. And that can, you know, there's a lot of parenting methods out there. And, and most of them, you know, the positive parenting methods are good. I really like one called the Nurtured Heart Approach yeah. by Howard Glasser back in Tucson. Um, uh, I find it to be very, very helpful in, in helping kids' self-esteem develop. But it could be anyone, but you really have to talk to parents about how they're parenting and whether they're feeling frustrated and upset with with their child, uh, which given how some ADHD kids behave could be very understandable and give them that help. Yeah, it's tricky. And I think, you know, it gets back to parenting on all fronts is exceedingly important in the outcome of, of the whole family unit, not just the child. And so having parents grounded is, is a big one. I've spent the better part of the last three years myself personally going through some major journeys, trying to see how I can be a better person on all levels, because I think we never should stop. No. And so I, I appreciate that as well. And Howard Glasser's book, you know, that is one of the, one of the, one of the better ones out there. And I interviewed, um, a few weeks ago, um, Ashley Merriman, who wrote one of my favorite books, um, Nurture Shock. And, you know, she took the scientific approach to, you know, many different things. Why do kids lie? Why do they do this? Why do they do that? And really looked down at the social sciences in a way that I think was exceedingly well done. And, and one of the things I thought she did incredibly well was lay out the framework for Carol Dweck's work. I know you, Carol Dweck's near, I think she's near your area. 
and you know looking at you know the whole reality of 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 not praising the child's intelligence not praising the child's beauty not praising those things that are static but but praising the effort praising you know that which the, the encouraging the effort that is so you 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 teach the kid that is their work that leads to outcome which leads to design and and all of that so i i think to your point, I think that's a critical, and we could probably spend a whole another hour on that entire topic because that oh, yeah. that is such a such a big one in 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 getting kids to a grounded state. Because that's another big piece. If your home is a is a dysfunctional mess, it's very hard to stay grounded, and you're then looking to your peers who may not be your best influences. So, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and you know that runs around to what we were talking about at the very beginning. Uh, why are why are kids' homes so stressful and why are they so difficult? And and part of that is you don't have a parent home most of the time. And right. your grandmother doesn't either live upstairs or next door, and, and your uh, relatives aren't close. And there's not a sense of of community and and play. You can't just go outside and play in so many parts of the country anymore. All and those- how much was learned? How much was learned in those interactions on the playground where you're not getting that interaction in the video game, even though you have friends on the other end of the line. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a really tricky one. So I want to ask you two more questions because I know I want to be conscious of your time and I appreciate your hour. Uh, you, you know, you are you are an anthropology undergrad. And I have found in my podcasting career, as short as it's been that my favorite guests have been anthropology undergrads because, <laughs> because they tend to see the world through a very interesting lens. Have you noticed in your career that that undergraduate degree in anthropology really helped you look at the world through a lens that was, I'm not accepting what you tell me. I want to see what happened in history. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, I think anthropologists learn to back off and look at culture from a from a from a outside more objective point of view, rather than just sort of having it wash over them, being able to look at another culture that does things very differently, kind of enables you to look at our culture, at your own culture, hopefully in a little bit more of an objective, uh, analytical sense. So yeah, I think I think it has been helpful. All right, last question. Uh, I've asked this of all my guests, and and I'll, I'll give you the answer from what I, from what I would do first. So, if you had one golden ticket to hand to Congress, the president, or anyone to affect one major change, mine would be school nutrition. I would change school food unbelievably. What would you do? Say, want to have golden ticketed and done? And take your time. Ah, uh, well, that's a really good question. Um, I think I would like to have excellent family uh, leave policies. Yeah. I think that the family leave issue is so big that those first months of the kid's life are so big. Excellent family leave policies and continuing with excellent um, support of children through childhood care credit or whatever, so that we, we really put our resources into our children who we say we, we value so much, but we really don't when the pedal hits the metal. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm always amazed that the, the, just on the simplistic side of insurance, Medicaid is combined with disability in adults and different things in adults, which is the highest spend. And so we constantly get put on the back burner as pediatricians for cost structures of pay and whatever. And why don't you separate us out? Let us be our own little world of we cover the kids up to 21 and we'll make sure they get the best care and let us take the money and not waste it in all these other places. And I always get so incensed by that reality in our insurance model, because to your point, I think if we're not willing to take care of our most recent generation, we're in trouble. And and COVID did a lot of damage and we've got a lot of catch up to do now. So, yeah. So last thing, Sandy, and again, so grateful for your time. It's such a joy to be the student back in the room with the teacher and interviewing and discussing. But is there, other than people reading your book, ADHD Without Drugs, which is a fantastic book, is there any place you want people to come search you up or, you know, do you do Instagram, any of that? I'm not a social media guy, but I thought I'd ask anywhere. <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't. I don't do Instagram uh, or social media, so I guess the answer is really no, unless somebody wants to come to California. You know what? I love it. And honestly, I think that's the answer because to me, my newsletter, and this is my only outlet in general, I don't want anything more than this and I'm grateful not to have it. But Sandy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It has been an absolute joy for me to spend this hour with you. And again, um, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for teaching me all of these years and allowing me to learn from you. And thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. This has really been a delightful pleasure. Enjoyed it. All right. Take care. You too. Well, there you have it. A wide ranging tour through an integrative approach to attention deficit disorders by one of the preeminent specialists in the world and in this country for sure. As you can tell, when we think about attention deficit disorders and neurobehavioral disorders, uh, Dr. Newmark and now myself as well clearly believe there are more ways to deal with these issues than just straight pharmaceuticals that are, are you know touted as the way to deal with attention problems or neurobehavioral problems. And, and I clearly disagree with that contention. And I know Dr. Newmark has just laid out a fantastic case as to the why. The difficulty with a lot of these things lies in studying them and providing high quality studies. As Dr. Newmark laid out, there are studies that exist that sort of help give us a guide as to which direction to go when it comes to nutrition or, or nutraceuticals or therapies um, that are coming down the pike or exist today. Before we get into some of the studies, I want to highlight the two books and approaches that Dr. Newmark discussed. One of them is the Nurtured Heart Approach, and you can find the information related to this approach on nurturedheartinstitute.com. But essentially, you know, this is a way of looking at the challenges that undermine, you know, the the effective function of a child in a classroom or any environment that they find themselves in and how can we affect change in these relationships whether it's with other people in school or the teacher or anything and you know Dr. Newmark laid out clearly that the nurture heart approach has done 
you know, had game-changing effects in different environments. So I highly encourage you if you have a child um, that is in this realm of attention or behavioral uh, concerns, look at the Nurtured Heart approach and go to nurturedheartinstitute.com. The second book that he discussed that I think is of interest is Reset Your Child's Brain, a four-week plan to end meltdowns, raise grades, and boost social skills by reversing the effects of electronic screen time by Victoria L. Dunkley, D-U-N-C-K-L-E-Y. So, you know, we clearly, again, both absolutely agree that the world of screens has put an undue burden on our children to try and succeed in a world where distraction is the norm. I could tell you myself personally, I don't know how I would have made it to the position I'm in in my life now if I had to deal with the distraction of the constancy of video games at home, phone, you know, social media, texting, all the other things that attack my children and my patients on a day-to-day basis most of, it is, most of which is actually now being driven by a system that has the intent and the purpose of keeping you addicted to the phone to make money via ads and all the other things. So that is a massive challenge for all of us as a society, but each one of us individually as parents. So Reset Your Child's Brain is a book that I highly encourage everyone to read. Now, when we look at studies and diet in specific, nutritional studies are exceedingly difficult to do, but there are some that are of interest. And I think, you know, as a society and as a group of providers or parents, it's not a bad idea to take stock in what are the possibilities of interventions of diet changes? What will the outcomes be of the intervention, right? And so, you know, if you look at a study, um, that was published by NIGG et al., NIG et al. in 2012, they noted that, you know, in a meta-analysis of, of 20 studies, including almost 800 participants, they found a small effect size of eliminating food, add- food additives based on parent reports. And, um, you know, that is something that's potentially a place for you to look at. You know, do dyes make an effect on your kid with behavior attention? right? I think it's worth looking at. What's the downside to pulling out additives or dyes? None. What's the upside? Potential benefit. Easy. Do it. You know, we look at more rigorous elimination diets. There are a few that have been looked at in randomized clinical trials. And, you know, when we look at two independent meta-analysis reporting effect sizes of roughly, you know, 0.29 or 0.51 across six different controlled trials, in NIG et al. 2012, and also Sanuga Bark et al., S-O-N-U-G-A, uh, slash B-A-R-K-E at all in 2013. And, you know, they concluded in these two different studies that approximately a third of children with ADD will have some symptom reduction at oh, more than a third, right? In some cases, higher than 40%. I think that's important. I think that makes sense to me to consider looking at elimination diets. In our clinic, we absolutely look at eliminating gluten and dairy in kids, especially if they have a history of milk protein intolerance as an infant, right? Or if they have a first primary relative with celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. These are low-hanging fruit issues that on a month trial have no downstream health effects negatively, but have significant possibility for upstream effects that are beneficial. So, you know, for me, I think that has a lot of value. I think when we look at things like having high amounts of refined sugar in the diet, just from the inflammation perspective alone and the long stream disease risk alone, that's a, a, a no-brainer, 
try cutting out refined sugars and carbohydrates and just what I call highly processed foods. Um, but when you look at what actually happens in a meta-analysis forum, it suggests that a diet high in these refined carbohydrates and bad foods can manifest as increased problems with attention and hyperactivity. You know, that may be due to the fact that when you pull out these refined carbohydrates, you're generally replacing with higher quality, you know, diet with fruits and vegetables. And, you know, one of the studies that looked at that was Del Pont et al., D-E-L slash P-O-N-T-E et al. from 2019. You know, so again, there's more studies to be looked at, but this is just a smattering of ideas as to, you know, the data is out there as beginning pieces, but it's not an end, you know, perfect slam dunk that these are, you know, unchangeable or un, you know, in the future that data may prove that we're not right on this. But again, for me, these are no brainers, you know, removing foods that are potentially problematical, removing dyes that we have no need to have at all anyway, removing refined carbohydrates and bad, you know, processed foods, which we shouldn't have anyway. These all make sense outside of even having a study. But, you know, having the study for some people is important. For me, not so much, but I'm giving it to you for those that really care about it. You know, I think as time goes on, I'm going to do some more work on, on a, a podcast around specifically nutrition and brain health in the future. And I'm also going to try and get Bonnie Kaplan, a researcher in this space on the podcast, so we can look a little deeper into these things. But, you know, for me, you know, there, there's a lot more to come. When we look at the nutraceuticals or specifically things like zinc and vitamin D and iron, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said here. I do check these minerals in patients and I do supplement as needed based on lab studies. I do find benefit there. And for me, the biggest thing, and as Dr. Newmark pointed out, I think very clearly, is that what ends up happening in a lot of these cases is we're not actually, you know, avoiding drugs completely for all kids. But for a subset of them, they're coming off meds. For another subset of them, their med dose is very low, so they have no side effect risk, their personality doesn't change, so they're less inclined to want to stop the medicine. And then for another subset, you know, maybe it doesn't have as much of an effect as we think, and maybe there's more hard wiring going on there than we otherwise think. These are all, again, our experiences with patients in the clinic, not based on specific study. There are studies, again, looking at micronutrients, and, and again, you can research those. There's a really nice article that was recently published um, in uh, Nutritional Psychiatry. Uh, this was published by Dixon et al., D-I-C-K-S-O-N, um, and the date of publication was October 2019. And again, this was in the journal European Neuropsychopharmacology. The title of the article is Nutritional Psychiatry Towards Improving Mental Health by What We Eat. And so, you know, the data is coming. We need more, a lot more to prove definitively what the answers are. But I think following a roadmap as laid out by, by Dr. Newmark, makes complete sense to me because, again, I'm looking at always these things from the Hippocratic perspective. What's the downside of these decisions? Are there major downsides? You know, are there things that if we do them, there is a, a, a downstream effect that the child suffers? And clearly, with most of these approaches, there are none. You know, I'm very interested to see what the product attentive does that we discussed briefly um, in, in the podcast. I'm, you know, hoping that this 
you know, gamified system that can be done at home will be easy on the patient to one, obtain, two, do, and three, show benefit, right? These are all the things we're looking for. Low cost, high quality, reliable, easy to use methods to reduce overall symptomatology, which then reduces need for medicine, which then reduces self-esteem issues and on and on and on. So I'm going to stop there. And I hope again that I fulfilled the goal of giving you a a window into the brilliance of Dr. Newmark, his work, and what we all should be looking at from provider and patient and parent alike as to how we can move forward in this society in a way that helps mitigate the risks of any dysfunction that we have in our lives, whether it be attention deficit, autism, neurobehavioral disorders, or even just a precursor risk for you know, neuropsychiatrical degeneration over time. I truly think food is a huge player in neurodegenerative diseases as we age. So with that, I'll end, as always, hug those kids and hope you all have a fabulous day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This letter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.